Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here today, and uh, we'll get started with a, uh, with a prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could be here today, and uh, we pray, Lord, that you would bless this time, and we ask that it would be beneficial uh, to all of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I always like to start with uh, what was valuable or what stuck with you from the last time that we met. You know, I like to think that, that every once in a while there's something that happens and something that I teach that actually impacts somebody. Um, you know, hey, you, you can always, you know, hope and dream, right? Um, but uh, is, there, is there anything that came up last week that stuck with you? Or maybe it came up during the week? All right, I'm par for the course. Um, it's all good. Well, you weren't here either, so. Right? Last week, Pastor Zachary did. Was it last week? It was the week before. Yeah, you're right. You were here last week. Oh. I talked to your wife somewhere along the line. Yeah. No, I, no, last week I was in St. Louis. I am such a, a, a mess. <laughs> I mean, really, you want us to expect Remember from two weeks ago, seriously? I, I would expect a, uh, you know, a, a, a skilled lawyer to uh, remember the salient facts of... Uh... <laughs> Alright, well, go back a little bit further. Is there anything that uh, from uh, Romans 14? First 12 verses? It's all good. Um, what, did pa what did Pastor Zachary do last week? Talk about Thanksgiving. Oh. Excellent. Very good. So, yeah, last week we were in St. Louis, and uh, let me tell you just a little bit about this church that we were at. It was founded in uh, the 1840s, and uh, the, uh, the church itself was built in the 1860s. Was there anything going on in our country in the 1860s? There's, there was a little bit of a kerfuffle uh, between the north and the south or something like that. They built this incredible, beautiful, huge church. My son-in-law walked in and he took a look around and he's like, are they Catholic? <laughs> and I was like, no, this is, this is old school Lutheran architecture. Um, you know, so the, the, the sanctuary is at least as high. As, as the room that we're in right now, maybe, maybe even higher. And uh, um, it has white plaster walls and, and beautiful paintings on the, on the, on the ceilings, um, like little seals at, at different points. It's got Luther's seal, other symbols at different points. And uh, the altar, some of you may have seen this on Facebook when, you know, when, as people posted pictures from the wedding. Um, it's a really old style altar um, where you have uh, Christ in the center and there Moses on one side and you've got Mary and uh, John at the, uh, at the altar. I don't remember who's on the far right, um, but, uh, but a very old style of, of decorating um, behind the altar, very, uh, very beautiful. And uh, the wedding was absolutely amazing. Of course, you know, the one who steals the show is the, uh, the one-year-old Ring bear. Wow. This is a conversation I have regularly with, with uh, couples when they you know, say, and our ring bearer is two or less. I'm like, okay. Um, be ready because that child may or may not perform to your expectations. 
And in fact, we should probably just manage your expectations right now to say that they probably won't. Um, and, uh, and so my brother has three kids. Uh, Daniel is, is four and he's supposed to pull the wagon uh, that has uh, um, Levi in it. And Levi uh, is just supposed to sit in the wagon and look cute. And then Nora uh, is three and she's supposed to be throwing the pedals. And she just starts, you know, crying and hides on dad's shoulder. And she has to like, he has to carry her down. <laughs> Daniel is proud and he's pulling the wagon. And Levi just about third of the way down, lays down and starts screaming. <laughs> so I was like, perfect. That's the way that that works. Um, but uh, it was gorgeous. I went to their Thanksgiving Eve service. Um, partly because Ricky uh, was playing and my, my daughter-in-law was singing in the choir. Um, 200 people in worship Thanksgiving Eve. Wow. My daughter-in-law said there would be easily that many on Thanksgiving morning. Hmm. I was like, whoa. You know, it's, a, it's a big, big congregation. And uh, yeah, so it was neat. It was neat. And uh, if I can try to segue this into our topic for the day, um, you know, one of the things that really struck me, it, it, they don't always do this, but uh, the worship service on, on Wednesday evening, um, full pipe organ, adult choir, kids choir, and an orchestra. Just... <clears throat> Yeah, wow is, is a good word for it because you, it's just the kind of thing that, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes the style of the service, you know, can really grab you, you know, in, in ways that, you know, you know it, it, especially if you're not used to that type of a thing. And it, I think it speaks to the, the, the power of the gift of music, but it also speaks to um, the liturgy and, and the way that the service is, is put together. And uh, I was here for three days uh, this week. Um, we came back on Monday, so I was in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then on Friday, we headed to Valparaiso for um, uh, Libby's Christmas concert. Libby's a senior this year, and I've never been to one of her concerts. So I was like, I don't have time to do this, and I don't have time to not do this. Yeah. So, so we went, and um, and that was beautiful too. Um, the uh, the chapel at Valparaiso is the largest college sanctuary in the United States. It's the second largest in the world. You know, and uh, you know, there, there's there's an ethos around Lutheran worship. It's something that uh, uh, I think that we do a little bit differently than some other denominations. Um, and, uh, and I think that we have some peculiar, and I mean that in the, the, the best sense of that word, you know, it's unique um, emphases when we, we come to, uh, to worship. And because I was only here three days, I didn't have time to translate and to work through uh, Romans 14, verse 13 and following. So I said, I'm going to go to something that I know really well and, uh, and have done multiple times and get through today and we'll get back to Romans next week. So, um, Lutheran worship. I think to get at Lutheran worship, one of the good places to start is with the third commandment. 
And how does Luther explain the third commandment in uh, the small catechism? Okay, um, so the third commandment is? It's printed on the sheet, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That, that, that's an interesting phrase. There are a couple of things there that we probably need to unpack. Um, uh, like, you know, what is a Sabbath day? Um, what does it mean to keep something holy? Um, and then uh, Luther asks the question, what does this mean? And uh, would you join me in reading that? <clears throat> we should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. So take a look at that. Look, look at that meaning. Fear and love God so we do not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. What does this tell us about the purpose and emphasis of a worship service? It's not to be taken lightly. Absolutely. It's something that's very important, right? What else? You concentrate on the words. You don't think about talk so much about people and how people are getting along, but you're looking at God. Okay, I like that little, the last thing that you said there. Uh, everything else is fine too, but I, I think that really brings it together. Our attention is on God. What else do you get out of that? Michael. Education. Tell me more. It seems like this way is supposed to be um, less praise, more learning. You're supposed to hear it and learn it, is what they say. So you're supposed to, because you know, a lot of people, at least at his time, couldn't read. Right. And so the only time they heard the word or learned the word was through someone telling them. Yeah. And it's important to know that when we talk about hearing, learning, and obeying, those words are all connected together in the Old Testament. They, they, they all are attached to each other. So when we, we talk about hearing the word um, and learning the word, it's also connected to living within this word and keeping it. So a lot of good stuff there. Yeah. When it says uh, so that we do not despise preaching, I, I thought that's interesting. I, I guess it's saying um, don't think of it as a chore. Yeah. Have you ever thought of, of coming to church as a chore? Well, when I was younger, I enjoyed it now. Okay, I sometimes find it to be a chore. <laughs> yeah, Kathy? Yeah, that there's, a, there's actually an element of joy in the, the, the worship experience, you know, and coming and hearing God's word, and yeah. yeah. What else? Just a reminiscence. I remember when I was old enough to be an acolyte. Okay. That the sacristy of the church had a rear, the church had a rear entrance. Mm. So you could speak out of the sacristy. And then it was a great thing amongst the early teenagers to then zip around, move in a circle, to the drugstore on the other side and order a, a Coke at the, at the fountain and drink it and get back in time to put out the candles. <laughs> nice. And skip all that other stuff. <laughs> um, Chris's grandpa was a pastor. 
and he was a uh, smoker. And so if you think through the order of the service, um, you go from the, uh, the sermon to the offering, and you, they would have an offertory hymn. And uh, one time, you know, he got done with the sermon, and uh, he always would step out for a smoke during the offering. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and he announced the hymn, and he, uh, the organist kind of started playing, and the door closed, and she stopped and said, turn to him whatever that she wanted, and played a completely different hymn while he was out scrapping his smoke. <laughs> yeah. What else do you get out of this? Kind of a warning that you can learn to hate going to church or yeah. kind of get irritated or whatever. Okay. Kind of a warning. Yeah. Yeah, the commandments do that. They warn, Keep for sure. Keep remembering what is being said and why and what you learned before. And don't permit yourself to be bored. Don't permit yourself to be bored. Um, I was talking with a teacher one, one time, and, uh, and his comment was that you know, the cardinal sin of teaching and preaching is being boring. I try. I make no promises. Um, yeah, Ed. I think, again, if I think back to the earlier part of childhood, that in those days, uh, you never went to church like this. Right. You know, you had to get gussy. And the children did. And I just felt, you know, if, you, if as a child you objected to this, you were told that this was how you were showing respect for God. But it really was. It was, it was a false pride. Okay. And, and I think there was a lot of that, that, that. That's just something you have to sort of guard against, I think. Not that you were going to go and put somebody down because they're wearing a suit and tie. You know, that's not the case either. But it, it we need to make respectability independent of, 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 of piety, you know? They're not the same thing. But they can be connected to. They can be. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. But you can get too much emphasis. Yeah, th this, is, this is actually something that I, I've, I've thought about a little bit recently. Um, actually, within the last couple of years, this has come up a few times. You know, there's a, a, a spectrum I think, in terms of how we, we dress for things that matter. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, it, it kind of hit me. Uh, I'm going to pick on acolytes, but it's, it, it's, it's not just acolytes. Um, the, the tendency to wear like shorts and sneakers and sports clothes, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, well, they're, they're covered with a robe. Kind of. I can see their ankles. I, you know, and uh, um, and if I were to be summoned for jury duty, God forbid, you know, be a defendant or whatever, or, or have to, you know, give testimony, there is a uh, there is a dress code that I would, um, a minimum dress code that I would be required and expected, and uh, and I don't want I don't want required and expected, you know, and that's out of respect for the law, right? Yeah, and yet. You know, there's this incredible informality when we come to church that I'm not sure that that's... I, 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 I'm really uncomfortable with the extremes. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I have to wear the, the suit and the tie because it's the Lord's day and this is what's required of me. And then the other being, yeah, doesn't matter what I wear, just, you know, the Lord loves me, whatever I do. Is, is there a lot of render unto Caesar in that? 
I think there is a little bit of that. Yeah. You know, and, and render to the Lord what is the Lord's. Yeah. And what is the Lord's? You know, give him the honor that's due his name. Yeah. You know. And, and, and it's, it's personal, too. It's, it's, it is. It means you. To some people, getting, you know, formally dressed up is an important part of their worship. It is. And I would never take that away from them. You know. Yeah. And, and the hard part is for some people seeing everyone else dressed up is an important part. And then, then you get into, well, it's not what I want to do. <laughs> and ultimately, is it the outward stuff that matters? Right. That's what's going on in, in, the, exactly. in the heart, yeah. right? But there's a lot we do in the church service to support. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Alex. Yeah. You know, uh, my brother, he, he always falls asleep in church. <coughs> and he just can't do it. You know, and he always told me, I, I just hate church. I always fall asleep. And, you know, I kind of get back to what we do in church is never going to be good enough anyway. Right. You're not going to measure up to the bar. And you right. shouldn't kick yourself for, for falling asleep. If you go to church and get some rest, you know, you went to church and got some rest. <laughs> I'm a sinner, so. <laughs> so in my family, my great-grandfather always fell asleep during the sermon. And he had this habit of, um, uh, my, my, my heritage is very earthy. There are a lot of farmers and, um, and, uh, and, and people who work the earth. And uh, um, when he would wake up from his naps at home, he would stand up and stretch and he'd say, oh, shh. But he would finish that work. <laughs> and uh, one time when he fell asleep in, uh, in church, my grandma Daisy gave him a big old elbow. And he stands up, stretches, <laughs> and he finished. <laughs> So, yes, it's a gathering of sinners. Did, yeah. grandma, let him continue, did grandma let him continue to live? Um, I think he lived a while longer. You know, she really loved him. They had nine kids. <laughs> Michael. I was just kind of piggybacking. One, I can think of the church one. Um, when I was in basic training, the pastor said, I don't care if you do fall asleep, you're here. And uh, that, like, when you close your eyes, your other senses come up. So even though you might be sleeping or close to it, you can still hear. So that's something. But to the clothing thing as well, it's also cultural. I mean, you look at the cultural shift, and from no matter where you go in the world, people wear dressed differently. Because, I mean, if you get someone from, say, the Middle East, they're going to be coming in, like, that long robe thing that they wear. But is that dressed nicely or not to us? Because, I don't know, but... And then you look at what people wear, have worn, or what was available to be worn at different times. They had their Sunday vests, which they kind of well, was still kind of dirty because they still had to wear it. But today, jeans is the norm. Yep. And, yep. and it drives me nuts when I went to college. This was, you know, it was 20 years ago, but it was like they were showing up in pajamas, which threw me completely. But at least they were there and they were learning. But I agree, you want some sort of decorum. But to mandate it is what drives people away from it sometimes. That's what. So with the court system, they demand it, but who likes to go to court? Right. I mean, for whatever reason, at the same time. But they have to wear that. But if they didn't have to wear that, they'd still show up in whatever they wanted to. Yeah. 
The other one that really kind of has been bothering me in my mind, um, and this is pastoral um, garb. Um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a fairly informal guy, and I'll, I'll go around in a polo shirt and jeans, sometimes at work and, and, and the like. Um, but if you, uh, if you were to turn to the priests of, of the great American religion, um, known as the NFL, <laughs> look, at what the, look at what they wear as they preach about what is going on in the games and you know, what the meaning of all of this is because they, are, but we're, they wear clothes that are some of the best that you can buy. It's part of their advertising, actually. And it's like, you know, I, I, think there's a, I think there's a balancing point there that it's worth considering. You know, how do we dress and why do we dress, you know, for the things that we do? Um, yeah, Ed. Just a, a quick note on juries. I've been on two of them. And in both cases, you know, everybody's decently dressed. Judge comes in in a, in a black robe, looking very dignified, sits down behind the bench, and in one case, the judge then immediately pulls out her laptop and spends the rest of the case working on paperwork, unrelated paperwork. <clears throat> and in the other one, the judge appeared to be asleep most of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, in both cases, when a when a question had to be settled, they were right there. Yeah. But the impression you get. Yeah, we got all these robes and things, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Lutherans, uh, we are what are called liturgical Christians. We we use a liturgy. I would argue that every church has a liturgy. It, you can put that on a spectrum as well. Um, it could be a liturgy of when you come in. We've got you know twenty five minutes of music. Um, from a band that's on the stage that you can either sit and listen to or you can kind of participate with um, and then the pastor is going to come and preach for 30 to 40 minutes and then you might have one more song you know, on, on your way out. That's a liturgy. Um, ours tends to be more connected to the ancient liturgy which has its roots in the synagogue. You know, where you have um, calling upon God's name, uh, you have confession and absolution, you have, uh, you know, time for prayers, you have hymns, all of these things. Is one of those right and one of those wrong? No. It's what you're comfortable with. Well, I, I, I think not even just what you're comfortable with, but what, what do you need to do in order to um, to serve the people, to deliver God's word um, and His gifts to a congregation, that's what a liturgy is is ultimately about. It, it's the context in which people receive God's gifts. You know, so in Corinthians it says that worship should be done with decency and order. Is there order? I come in, and we're going to sing some songs. The pastor is going to preach. And we're going to sing another song and off we go. Is that an order? Yes. Yeah, fairly predictable. Um, what we do, is there an order to it? You know, I mean, I would be willing to bet that if you give it a little bit of thought, you could think of the things that we do uh, in some form or another every single Sunday. Yeah. Um, I think that there is value um, I think there's value in, in having a, uh, 
uh, a liturgy, but I think that there is um, a different value to what we do um, in the way that it emphasizes God's word because um, all of those parts of the liturgy, um, they are connected to or they come from scripture. Um, I was reading an article not too long ago, an evangelical saying, we really need more participation from our members in our congregation. It would be really great if we could have some kind of a call and response kind of thing where people really know it and it really settles God's word in their heart. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But, you know it. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's, there's value in that. And with that, um, we use what are called lectionaries. Um, and a lectionary is a, uh, it's a reading plan. Uh, it comes from the Latin lectio, to read. And so every Sunday, there are readings that have been planned out for us. And um, um, that's uh, what I always preach from, almost always preach from. Um, I do vary from it from time to time. But uh, those readings themselves are called pericopes. And that comes from Greek, peri, meaning around, you know, like a periscope, you look around the corner with it, right? And uh, a kapto means to cut. And so this is really easy, like with Microsoft Word. Highlight, cut, paste. That's a pericope, okay? Except our pericopes on Sunday are from the Bible. Now, are there some pros and cons to lectionaries and pericopes? Yeah. And then you get the full range of God's strength. Yes. You know, so you don't have a pastor who shows up unprepared and decides to talk about the third commandment and worship because he didn't properly prepare for the day. I was not thinking that. I was. They're also cyclical, right? So we're hearing the same every three, I think we're in a three-year cycle. Yep. So we're... You know, just like children like to hear the same story over and over again, we're then every three years hearing the same scripture over and over again. Okay. Is that a pro or a con? Probably some of both. So the pro okay. is that is re-emphasizing that then sometimes there might be parts of scripture that we're not really spending a lot of time on that are probably important and then we're going to have to deviate from that. All right. The problem with the periscope is you're cutting out, you're taking all the context away. Okay. You can destroy the context in something and look at it and it can be completely different than looking at all of the things that came before, the things that came after, or the historical perspective. All can change the meaning of the words. Mm -hmm. That's one reason I think that adult Sunday school is so important. I think it fills in a whole lot of those gaps with our education and our, our information and knowledge for the things that we don't get. Okay. We used to have a, uh, just maybe follows me around. We used to have a Missouri City pastor who came to church at our LCA church. And he was 
find in the service of that, but he was always very insistent that the sermon should always be on the gospel for the day, never any of the Old Testament lessons. And our LCA pastor was not eager to go along with it. So it's just, but I don't think that means you don't confine yourself to the, to the gospel. No, I don't. Um, although I, I do kind of gravitate to it a lot. Yeah. Um, but uh, and, and I have heard pastors from different stripes, um, different alphabet soups too, um, yeah. say that that's the one that you should always preach on. Um, I, I I don't agree. Uh, you need to uh, you need to preach on the whole counsel of God. Um, I actually picked up a pattern that I was trying to do that I've not been able to really keep up um, where I would uh, for one season preach on the Old Testament the next season I would preach on the uh, epistle the season after that I would preach on the gospel and kind of keep working my way around and hopefully you know the next time I got around to that year I'd be preaching on the epistle where I preached on the Old Testament the previous time you know so I'd, you know in a nine-year cycle you would cover everything but those of you who know me know I'm not well enough organized to be able to pull that off. <laughs> Although I've tried. Other strengths or weaknesses? I, you know, I'm going with that. It's like people do like to focus in on things that they do enjoy the most and versus things that they um, don't find as interesting. But then you're, you're having gaps in information that's being yep. handed out. Um, for me, I've learned the Old Testament over and over again, and I've known less of the New Testament. Bob's asked me to teach a class, I'm like, it's got to be New Testament because I don't know it so well. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have that because the kids are bombarded with all the old stories, but they know very little of the newer stuff. And so when you cut it down like that, yeah, it's easier for them to understand because there's pictures, there's lots of stuff for it. But mm -hmm. Reduce what they're learning. Yeah. So if you think about Sunday morning, if that is the only time or the primary time that you are hearing God's word, how much of the Bible do you think you get in a, uh, uh, in a three-year span? Yeah, it's like less than a quarter. You know, so that's one of the things that I think is actually a weakness of the pericopal system. Um, and, uh, and it can also be a strength. Um, when I was a kid, we used the one-year lectionary. We repeated the readings every year. And uh, um, sometimes it's good to know something small, but know it deep. You know, there, there's, there's a benefit to that, you know. Um, uh, on the other hand, there's also something to be said, you know, the three-year lectionary is a similar type of idea, but it's a little bit more broad. But I think that there's something to be said for um, going back and reading whole books. Um, but of course, you know what happens when I get a book of the Bible. How long have I been teaching on Romans? <laughs> you know, it's, it's been three years. And I'm, you know, and, and pretty much an hour, you know? Um, and uh, I, I know of guys who like preach the gospel of John and it took them, you know, five plus years. You know, and there's other stuff to talk about too that, that is important as well. So, you know, you, you kind of, you, you have your pros and your cons to this. 
And I think doing what you're comfortable with or doing what you think is most beneficial for the congregation in order that they would receive God's word and receive his gifts is really what is at the heart of the matter when you think about what, what do we need to do for, for worship. So um, last year, I know you can't remember two weeks ago, so I'm not going to ask you to remember last year. Um, uh, for Lent, I preached on the life of Moses. And, uh, you know, and part of the reason for that is uh, I'm finding that people don't know these stories that we, you know, a lot of us learned in Sunday school. They, they don't know those basic stories. And this summer, I preached on a series uh, on the heroes of the Old Testament. You know, and just telling these stories and, you know, connecting them to the life of, of a Christian. You know, I think that that is... I did it, so uh, I, I think that's completely appropriate to say I'm going to step away from the appointed readings in order to focus on something else because it will be beneficial for the congregation. Make sense? There's a lot to be said for repetition. There is. And when people say, well, we had this last year or last month, so what? Yeah. But again, and, and the Old Testament stuff is important because it leads into the new, and you miss a lot of the New Testament if you don't know the old. Yeah, and you know, to get on my hobby horse for just a moment, um, tilting at windmills like Don Quixote, um, there isn't an Old Testament and a New Testament. There is one scriptures, and it all points to Christ. You know, and it's, it's this, this bifurcation that's actually not all that incredibly helpful. You know, we need that word of the Lord uh, that was spoken to the people of Israel to understand what Jesus has done for us, to really deeply understand that. So we, uh, we tend to follow a church year. Um, the, uh, the sanctuary looks beautiful, by the way. Thank you to all of you who uh, hung around to help decorate uh, last Sunday. And um, it's always a joy. Uh, that's actually the first way that I saw our sanctuary. Um, I came, it was 2010, I had a meeting, uh, the Friday, Black Friday, um, in the so end of November, and the sanctuary was already dedicated. That's the first way that I saw uh, Gloria Day. Peggy, you were there. Um, I don't think there's any other members from the call committee in, in here. Um, but, uh, um, you know, it's the, the Advent season. And uh, when you think about Advent through Epiphany, you can think of all of that as kind of Christmas. You know, it's, it's all connected there. And if you look at the, uh, the wheel down there in the lower left corner of, of the page, it's a, you know, kind of a general map of uh, um, what the church here looks like. And this is, I'm sure, something that is um, very familiar to you if you think about your experience of the worship. Uh, life of, of our congregation. And, uh, and so we begin with Advent. In Advent, uh, I have a friend who's hyper-liturgical, um, and he knows all of this, this stuff that I have a hard time bringing myself to care about um, in terms of when things begin and all of this. Uh, but uh, he, he had a long post about how Advent begins the day after St. Andrew's Day, and I still don't know how they figure out when St. Andrew's Day is. Um, I always just kind of count back the Sundays until Christmas. Um, but uh, um, 
he, uh, he was very excited about this, and, and, uh, and Advent has begun. Hence, many of you are wearing blue. Um, but uh, uh, as we, we think about the Advent season and the, the coming of a, a new year, um, you might think about why we have these things. And uh, it started with Easter. When does Easter happen? Okay, and it's connected to another holiday. Passover. A, Passover, yes. So we have a we we have a, a formula to know when Passover happens. So we know when Jesus was crucified and when he rose from the dead. And so we just use that same formula to know, you know, when are we going to celebrate? Jesus resurrection and you're right it is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox yeah um, and uh, and so you know those things are very predictable in terms of people who understand how the stars move and all of that um, and, and so you know that was a set date and people were like hey um, we know when the anniversary of Jesus crucifixion is we should celebrate that every year Oh, good idea, right? And so what they were doing before that was what's called a Lectio Continua, a continuous reading. So they're talking about preaching through a book. They would come to the synagogue or they would come to their service and they would read through the prophets and they would just take them in order. And you would just read through the entire book. Remember, Jesus goes to the synagogue and they open the scroll to the part of Isaiah that they were at at that time. You know, that's, that's how that works. And uh, they're like, we should probably, you know, focus for a period of time on why it was necessary for Jesus to die and arise. And so they looked around and they said, well, how long should we do that? And eventually they settled on the idea of 40 days because the number 40 is a significant number in, in the church. 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, you know, you know, and so to prepare to celebrate Jesus' resurrection and his death, um, a 40-day period, well, we can't count Sundays because those are all Easter. It's the Lord's day. You know, and so you end up with this five- to six-week period. And what we do during that time is, well, we fast and we pray and we prepare to remember why Jesus died for us. And then we prepare to celebrate because he's risen from the dead. That's a fantastic idea. We should do that every year. Okay, and then somebody came along and said, you know what else is really important? Jesus was born. <clears throat> we, should, we should do something like that for when Jesus was born. Except we don't really know when Jesus was born. Unless, unless we believe a particular idea about the great saints. And the belief about the great saints was that they died on the day that they were conceived. Kind of full circle. So follow that. The first, uh, the day that Jesus was crucified and raised, you know, right around March 24, 25, 
count out nine months and you come to December 24, 25. That's actually how they came up with that date. Yeah, the stuff about, you know, oh, we just co-opted a pagan holiday, you know, it's actually baloney. That's not how they came up with that date. You know, and I mean, how big of a genius do you have to be, you know, to think about, you know, oh, hey, it's this dark season, you know, let's celebrate a little bit of light. You know, um, Jesus comes and he's the light of the world. That's all, the themes all come together there. But Sol Invictus was the 21st, uh, the Yule Log, you know, all of that stuff. It's not the 24th and 25th. You know, there are other holidays that we placed on top of pagan holidays. Um, as a pastor, I, I know likes to say, our God defeats your God and takes his stuff. Um, but uh, um, you know, that's not how Christmas came about. And so now you have a, a, a time where, well, how do we prepare for the coming of a king? And they did the same thing. And they had a, a six-week period leading up to Christmas. How long is Advent? Four weeks. Have you ever noticed how the last two weeks of the church year are all about Jesus coming again? And the end times? It's because they used to be Advent. And those are the themes of Advent, and we just left them alone. And, you know, and so you go from Christ is coming again to Christ is coming again to Christ is coming and Christ has come. You know, and, and, and so and then they start filling in from there. You know, and if we're going to tell the story of Christ's birth, we should tell the story of his life. You know, and we have this period, Advent through um, the end of the Easter season, or even we could argue Pentecost, that takes up about half the year that we tell the story of Jesus. And liturgically, we call that the time of Christ. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we usually celebrate in the kind of May-June type of time frame, um, we enter into a, a, a season that we call the time of the church, in which we tell the story of God's people. And you, you may notice that when we get past Pentecost, um, well, starting here in Advent, a lot of the, the readings that we will have will be stories from the Gospels, things that Jesus did. In the summertime, we get things that Jesus taught, things that Jesus said. It's not, it's not a, you know, impermeable wall or whatever, but, you know, you, you get a lot more like those action type of stories in the time of Christ and a lot more teaching type of stories um, in, in the time of, uh, of the church. Uh, the, the main exception to that being uh, every summer we read about the feeding of the 5,000 and uh, we have about three weeks right around the beginning of August that we will almost always hit that story. Um, and, and why? Why do we do this? To torment you. That's why we do this. No, seriously. What do you think? Why? Why would? Why would we find something like that valuable? Keeps the law and gospel intact. Okay. Say more about that, would you? Well, the the Lent and the Easter. Is obviously the gospel. 
And the advent of the epiphany is the hope that we have in the gospel. And in an ordinary time, that's the time for growth. That's why it's green. Yep. And um, we have the stories of what Jesus, how to obey, love, Yep. Yep. And we just keep going back and forth on that because we need to be reminded over and over again. We retold the stories. So each of these seasons is, is a certain period of time. Um, we already said that Advent is four weeks. How long is Christmas? Twelve days. Twelve days, right. Right, and uh, thank you. When does Christmas start? Christmas Day. Christmas Day. Yeah, I, I, was, I think somebody said it. Was that you, Kathy? Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, this is another one of my hobby horses, and I'm playing Don Quixote again. Christmas doesn't start until Christmas Day. Don't take down your Christmas tree on Christmas Day. Does it say that in the Bible? No, so feel free to take down your Christmas tree on Christmas Day. Um, but, uh, which, by the way, Christmas trees. Pagan? Lutheran. Luther brought it into his house and then in, yeah, it had everything to do with Luther, who uh, was a little bit nuts. I mean, when you really think about, you know, some of the stuff that he did, um, he, uh, he just decided it was beautiful and he wanted something fun for his kids and he brought it into the house. Wasn't there a Germanic tradition, though, with the pine? With the Yule log and burning it. Yeah, and there is with decorating with, you know, branches and things like that. I know, for instance, in English tradition, the holly, well, English and Celtic, they yep. revere the holly because it stays <coughs> But my understanding is in the Germanic tradition, that same reverence towards this plant that was still green and still had life in it during the darkest time of the year was something that, if you go back to the very pagan elemental yep. yeah. What do pagans worship? Nature. So yes, you know the king oak and uh, and I can't remember if the holly is considered to be male or not, um, but there was like this competition, you know, a war between them, and and you know the seasons are connected to all of that. Yeah, but the bringing of the uh, the Christmas tree in and setting it up in a stand and decorating it is not pagan; it's Lutheran. Um, in fact, uh, does anybody know where the first Christmas recorded Christmas tree in the United States was? Zion Lutheran Church in a little town called Cleveland. Really? Yeah. So, enjoy your Lutheran heritage. And spray some pine spray around your house. Um, pagans will tell you, though, oh, it's all pagan and they just stole it from us. No. What is the burning of the tree on the So you could connect that back to the, uh, the Yule type of an idea, but it, uh, I, I think that that's just a matter of practicality. You know, what do you do with this tree that's now dry and dead? When you especially know? I go far enough back when they put candles on it. <laughs> and yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We were always, you know, preached at don't leave the lights on all night, you know, because you could burn down the house and all of that, yeah. No. We went through a 
service at uh, was the Episcopal Church at around the end of the Christmas season, and they had had a tree of not artificial. Couldn't afford to do an artificial tree every year, but they had a tree decorated, you know, in the in the uh, name. And on that service, they took all the decorations off during the service. Then they came in with mopping shears and took all the branches off. Okay. Then they came in with a saw and cut it in half and turned it into a cross. Yes. For Lent. Yes. I've seen that. It was a downer. <laughs> yeah. And you called it the plundering of the tree? Plundering of the pine. The plundering of the pine. Yeah, I've, 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 I've not heard it called that before, but I've seen you know, where they take the, uh, the Christmas tree and they um, you know, cut off all the branches and then they turn it into the cross that they will have all the way through the, uh, the Lenten season and into Easter. Um, when you think of the, uh, the liturgical year, what's the emphasis? It's Jesus, yeah. And that's where we want to keep our, our focus as we go through. Um, all right, so four weeks, 12 days. How long is Epiphany? Trick question. It depends. It depends on when Easter is. Um, and so the, the end of Epiphany is uh, Transfiguration Sunday. And depending upon when Easter takes place, Lent, Ash Wednesday, um, you know, will, will change. And so Epiphany can be between four and nine weeks long. That's, that's how big of a, a swing you have in terms of the, the range in which Easter can, can happen. Um, and, uh, um, and this year I think it's five weeks. Uh, so it's, it's one of the shorter ones. Lent begins with Ash Wednesday. You back up the appropriate period from you know, Good Friday, uh, you know, Passover, the like. And uh, so you, you, know, you, you set that date. And in order to have 40 days, you start on a Wednesday, you don't count Sundays. Um, because every Sunday is Easter. How long is the Easter season? All year. <laughs> in a sense, yes, good answer. But we have a particular season. 40 days. A little bit more. 50 days. Because you do count the Sundays there, and it goes all the way through Ascension, yeah, um, and it ends with Pentecost, um, and, and so we know that um, 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and 50 days after the resurrection is when the Holy Spirit came, which is where we get the word Pentecost, right? You know, because the Pentagon has five sides, right? Um, except it wasn't named for the Christian holiday. It was named for a Jewish holiday that takes place 50 days after Passover. And so we just kept the name. Um, Pentecost is followed by Trinity Sunday. Uh, so we have one Sunday for Pentecost, and then you have Trinity Sunday, and then you enter into what used to be called the Trinity season. Sometimes it was called the Pentecost season. That's that long green season that Nancy was talking about. Uh, it's more common these days to just call it ordinary time, for whatever that's worth. And most of your year is spent in, you know, about half of your year is spent in ordinary time. And uh, 
you get to October and you have Reformation Sunday that we always observe. It's not an actual, you know, it doesn't have to happen on a Sunday. Um, you know, it's actually supposed to be, supposed to be um, celebrated on October 31st because that's the day that Luther nailed the 95 Theses. And then we have All Saints after that. And then we go back to green to finish out the church year. So there is a, there's a rhythm, there's a pattern, there's a, there's a madness to the method. Um, when you think about our liturgy, one of the, uh, the unique words that you will hear uh, around the Lutheran church is divine service. Um, this can be kind of a shibboleth. Do you know what a shibboleth is? It's a code word. Um, when Gideon, uh, you know the story of Gideon, you know, he's going to go and he's going to fight the Midianites and God's like, your army is too big. And he starts, you know, no, 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 no. It's after Gideon fought and there were some people who turned against him. Um, they, were, they could tell people from different areas by the way they pronounced the word shibboleth or sibboleth. Okay? It's a code word that tells you something about where the person is from. When you come to church on Sunday, what do you call what happens in church? Worship. That's a very American, very English uh, word that we use for that. The word worship comes from um, the, the combination of worth and ship. You know, so you're saying that God is worthy of praise and glory and honor. Is that a true statement? Yes, yes it is. Um, it's a different emphasis, though. There are Lutherans who like to call what happens on Sunday morning the divine service. Or if you go back to the German, uh, Gottesdienst. And it's a double entendre because if it's a divine service, who's serving whom? God serves us. Right. In, in the idea behind worship, it starts with we declare God to be worthy. Divine service begins with God serves us, but we're also going to serve the divine one, right? And, and so they, they're, they're very, some people are very strident about this. I have a hard time caring too deeply about it, but I, I think it's worth thinking about because what is going on in worship? Is it primarily about what I'm doing or is it first and foremost about what God does? Right. So when you look at our liturgy, the divine service, consider what's happening. And there's an outline of this on the back there with a beautiful picture of a sanctuary from some years ago. It might be worth thinking about what's different there. Um, we begin with the invocation in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which takes us back to our baptism, where God gave us faith, where he washed our sins away, and we're, we're gathered in that name and in that relationship. The next thing we do is confession and absolution. As a baptized child of God, are your sins already forgiven? Yep, and so we come with the confidence that our sins are forgiven and we confess our sins, and I say these words that are highly offensive to some, I forgive you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, and that's always part of our service. 
God is giving you forgiveness. God is giving you forgiveness. Think about where I speak those words from. Take a look at that picture. If only that had been a communion service. Because I would be standing, you would see the, the baptismal font, and then it would be me, then it would be the Lord's Supper, and then it would be, what's on the wall back there? The cross, which reminds us that Christ's sacrifice in order to atone for our sins. And all of that stands in a straight line. It doesn't happen in every church, but that's the way our architecture works. And I think that that's a nice visual that Christ's forgiveness through the supper, through the pastor, through your baptism to you. It's all you know, focused on what God is doing. Then we get into what's called the service of the word. You know, we have these scripture readings. We confess the creed right? We do that in the power of the Spirit at work in our lives. Uh, in the midst of this, we're singing some hymns and stuff. Um, then we have a sermon. Uh, then we have the prayers of the church. That's us, right? Except when we think about the Lord's Prayer. What's the first word of the Lord's Prayer? Our. Who, who, who is that first person plural? When Jesus taught the prayer, it was him and his disciples, and he says, when you pray, pray like this, our, and if those words come out of Jesus' mouth and he's using a first-person plural, that includes him. And so these prayers, Jesus prays with us. And uh, then we have the service of the sacrament, um, and uh, we have the Lord's Supper, and then we end with a blessing. And that blessing comes from Deuteronomy, where um, God says to, to Moses, when you bless my people, bless them like this. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord makes face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. So um, that, that sense of God being at work in us and us responding to his work is, is central to what we do. When we sing hymns, why do we sing them? Prayer. Part of it is prayer. What else? Worship, yep, because that's a response of faith. If you look at really good music, really good hymns and worship songs, they preach because they're connected to God's word and they retell the story. So, we got to get into church because we got some songs to sing that are going to preach to us and proclaim God's love and forgiveness to us. Thank you. Have a blessed week, everybody.